you want to turn your Bibles this morning, Jen will be able to track this sermon and put it on the wall behind us too, but if you'd like to read it, go with me to Genesis chapter 14. The story that we're looking at this morning is, is uh, some nasty kings came into where Abraham had family. They stole them, took them off captive, took everything that they had, and it made Abraham mad. And he had this promise on him, it was a fairly new promise, that, that he'd be blessed, wherever he went, he'd be blessed by the Lord, and that if anyone cursed him, that God would take care of his enemies, and that they would be cursed, and that if he blessed someone, they would be blessed. And we're sons of Abraham, according to what Paul wrote to the Galatians, Galatians 3 and 5, we're sons of Abraham. So the same promise applies to us. But he roused himself. Somebody touches your family, somebody's got to get mad. Nothing wrong with getting angry. It's getting angry at the right time for the right reason to the right degree. You, there's, there's stuff that should make you angry. There's stuff that if you don't get angry, there's something wrong with you. We've been told to stuff it down and not get angry, but Abraham got stirred up. He had 300 household servants. He mobilized them and tore into these, these I think there are five kings that had, had uh, banded together. You can picture them like Vikings with horns on their fur hats and big old nasty swords. And, and uh, he tears into them and he wins even though he's not a warrior, he has no armor. I mean, these are farmers. And, and he outfits his 300 servants and, and rides into them because he believes in the promises of, of God. And God would bless him. God would be with him. So he not only wins the battle and gets everything back, but he comes back. There's a lot of uh, booty, a lot of uh, uh, spoils of war. And uh, he doesn't want any of that. He just wants uh, to get back what belonged to him. But he runs into this guy. There's so these, these five kings, but all of a sudden there's this clean, noble, handsome-looking king. I think he looked like Jesus, is what I picture. And his name is Melchizedek. And I'm, I'm saying it the way we would say it in English. If you were Hebrew, it would sound very different. But in verse 18, he says that there was this king of... Um, uh, Salem, or king of righteousness. He's a king of peace, a prince of peace, king of Salem. And he's not only a king, but he's a priest. And we don't see that combination until Jesus comes. And he brings out a feast of wine and bread. I mean, it's just a powerful, powerful picture. And he begins to prophesy to Abraham, and he blesses him. And he says, blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and and uh, blessed be the God most high who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He says, he's, you're, blessed, you're blessed by the God who owns everything. Well, that worked its way in Abraham's heart. I mean, that, was, that became his language as you, if you keep reading. But in response to this blessing, in response to meeting this noble king of, of Salem, Abraham, out of the gush of his heart, decides to give this king 10% of everything he has. 
And, he, and it's not the, the booty that he gives them, it's, it's what he possesses. And he, and he tithes. For the first time, we see a tithe happening in Scripture. And first mention of anything in the Bible is significant. And, and what he did is he said, I'm going to give you 10% of everything I have. And he gave it to this king of Salem. And it was so noteworthy, there's almost a whole chapter in Hebrews chapter 7 written about that account. God didn't tell him to do it. There's no commandment that preceded this that says, look, I want you to start tithing. It came out of the volition of his own heart. It came out of a want to, not a have to. He wanted to do this. He wanted to honor the Lord. He was so grateful that God was with him and he won this battle. He's so grateful that he gives. I think that's powerful. And he ties. It's an amazing moment. Now, if you go with me to a few more chapters to the right, Genesis chapter 28, we see another instance of this kind of thing happening. And it's, it's his grandson, Jacob. And Jacob, his name, his name is really his character. His name means, I'll do anything to get ahead. And there are people like that. They'll just do anything to get ahead. He's a liar. He, he lied to his dad, bold-faced lie. He's, he's not a good person. He stole. He lied. He's, he's, a, he's a difficult person to be around. He's constant conflict. And he, he stages the whole thing in a way that he has to flee from home, leave his mother and father, never saw them again. And he gets out in the middle of nowhere. He's out on this grassy prairie. And he runs out of daylight. He's fleeing. He's going back to the, the land where Abraham had come from. And he's heading back because he's got relatives that way. And he's out on this. I picture him out on some moonlit prairie. He finds the softest rock he could find. That becomes his pillow. He, he fled in such a hurry, he's got a staff in his hand. We read later that he has this staff. He said he crossed this brook with just a staff in his hand. We know he's got a little bottle of oil. He's got a tunic. He doesn't even have a pillow. doesn't have his jammies, doesn't have anything. He's out there all alone. And it doesn't look good for him. And he knows that what he's done is wrong. And then this thing happens. That night, he has this dream, and he dreams a dream of a, a ladder that ascends from where he's laying all the way up into heaven, and angels are ascending and, and descending. They're cascading all up and down this, this amazing ladder, and he has this dream, and, and at the top of the ladder is the Lord, who again, uh, I think, looks like Jesus. And he speaks to him. He says, look at, uh, he says, I, I'm the God of your grandpa, God of Abram. He says, I'm the God of your dad. But Jacob didn't know him. He had never had an experience. It's kind of like growing up in a Christian home where grandpa and grandma, they know the Lord, and mom and dad, they know the Lord. But you haven't had an experience yet. It's like that. And God comes to him. And rather than saying, you are a bad man, 
and you're in, you're in trouble, and, and I damn you, and you're just, you're just going to have one bad thing happen after another. The Lord went the other way, and he said, he said, I'll go with you wherever you go, and I'll protect you, and I'll provide for you. I'll make sure you have food and clothing. Food and clothing, and, and in the New Testament, it talks about having food and raiment, and therewith be content. Food and raiment... And, and, and what he promises here is your basic needs. It's not just about clothing. It's not just about food. It's your basic needs. I'll make sure you're covered. You're going to survive. He said, not only are you going to survive, but the very land you're laying on is yours and your descendants. And, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have uh, such a blessing on you that you're going to have so many children and grandchildren, so many descendants, they're going to just fill this whole area like sand like the dust of the earth. That's hope. <laughs> when you're fleeing and you've got nothing, and all of a sudden the Lord says, you're not, only gonna, you're not only are you going to make it, you're going to thrive. You're going to be multiplied. I'll be with you wherever you go. I'll protect you, and I'll provide for you, and I'll bring you back to this place. That's hope, hope. When you have no hope, I'll tell you, hope, hope is everything. This is hope. This is the God of hope speaking life into him. And it so undid him because it's not what you're expecting. When Jesus showed up in my life for the first time, uh, he should have damned me, but he didn't. He just, he just poured out so much favor and so much fondness that it completely took me by surprise. I know something of what Jacob felt here. It's not what he deserved. And when he got up that morning, he said, man, I, I'm in the house of God. I didn't even know it. Uh, I, I'm, in the, I'm in the place where God is. And, and he, he, he makes this vow. And this is his first prayer, the prayer of his own heart, with no one looking, no one listening. He's not doing it for the church people. He's not doing it for grandpa or grandma. He's doing it on his own in the middle of nowhere. He said, if, you're gonna, if this is the kind of God you are, and the kind of God you'll be to me, you'll look after me and provide for me and bring me back to this place. You are my God. I make you my God. And he says, and I'll give you 10% of everything. Again, there's no, there's no law here at this period of time saying that he has to. It's coming out of, now listen now, it's coming out of the gush of his heart. It's coming out of gratitude. It's coming out of a want to, not a have to. It's the purest form of giving. I, I think it made God's chest swell. He wasn't doing it to get that kind of response, but it moves the Lord. It pleases him. And so they're the, that's the history of tithing as it happened initially. And, and the whole goal for us is to get, get into a level of giving and a level of living that we live out of the gush of our heart. We live out of gratitude. We live out of, because he is our God, we're going to live this way. Now, sometime later, in fact, 430 years, uh, the children of Israel went down into Egypt Jacob was there. Jacob was part of that whole deal. 
He had a son there named Joseph. And so, so Jacob passes from the scene, and they, they're living in the best place in Egypt. And next thing you know, it, it all goes south, the whole thing. And over a long period of time, 400, more than 400 years, everything gets bad. And they end up becoming slaves. They end up becoming uh, held down by the government, uh, held in bondage, being told what to do, when to wake up, and when to, what to work, got nothing to show for. I mean, just, they just reduced them to, to slavery. And the Lord raised up a deliverer and led them out. And they didn't know God. They knew that their grandpa did. They knew that their ancestors did. They knew that Jacob, their namesake, Israel, did. They, they know that they had a history with God. But after 430-some years, there's no real relationship with the Lord. There's no real religion. In fact, the only thing they really have in common is their ancestry. And Moses leads them out into this place where there's nothing. Nothing grows. There's nothing to eat. And God provides for them and, and waters their livestock miraculously and sends food down from heaven. And, then, and, and the Lord introduces a, a religious system that had never existed before, that was pure, that was holy. He said, this is how I want you to bathe and come before me and present yourselves before me, and I want you to worship in this way. I want you to build altars that haven't been chiseled with uh, your markings or the markings of man. I, I want it to be natural. He laid down all these ways to approach him and said, now, the way we're going to fund this thing, because he, one of the tribes of, 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 that belonged to Jacob, one of his sons, he said, I don't want you guys to work. I want you to be available for ministry. I want you to serve me and be available to manage this whole thing. You're going to be dressed different. And he said, the way we're going to, we don't, we don't even want you to own land that you have to till. We don't want you to be out in the fields. We want you to be available to serve the Lord. They're called Levites. He says, the way we're going to fund this whole system that had never existed before, nothing like it had ever existed before. He said, here's what I'd like to see. I'd like to see everyone give 10%. I'd like everyone to give a tithe. And uh, he didn't give them much latitude. They didn't have a choice in the matter. This was, this was a law that was being put down. You can read about it yourself in Leviticus chapter 27, and he described how it would happen. And he said, now, this will pay for if everyone, even the richest person and the poorest person among you, if they all give 10%, it's across the boards for everybody. We can have, we can have a religious system with a temple, and a ta or at that point, a tabernacle, eventually a temple. And it could all be sustained and paid for easily and lightly if we all carry it, if we all take a piece of this. And, and the whole system, we'll have a system where you can go anytime and pray. You can go anytime. There'll be offerings. You can go and have your sins dealt with. There'll be a place. And it'll be for everyone to be able to approach the Lord, and it's covered. And it's covered by, by the giving of everybody called a tithe. And, and that worked for a season, but then when... Uh, when they disobeyed God, one of the first things that went when they disobeyed God and they, their relationship with God became impaired and they started serving other gods, one of the first things that went was tithing. It's almost like a barometer. The giving of the gush of your heart, the, the giving in a disciplined way, like what was required of them, that's a real 
that's a real measuring stick of what's going on in your life. It's a powerful measuring stick. Let me get to Malachi chapter 3, and they've been restored to the land, and they're going to rebuild the temple, and they're going to reinstitute, they're going to hire, they're going to find who the Levites are, they're going to reclothe them, they're going to make instruments, they're going to build an altar again, they're going to rebuild the temple, and no one's heart is really in this. This, this is, a, they're on a low ebb spiritually. This whole thing... Nothing looks like it used to look. It's not as good as, it, church isn't as good as it used to be. They're having to start all over again. And, and they don't tithe. So the Lord spoke through Malachi, Malachi chapter 3, if you want to read it, verses 8 to 10. He said, you know, you know you're robbing me here of this whole, this whole thing. Uh, and they said, well, how, how have we robbed you? You're the possessor of heaven and earth. How have we robbed you? He said, in tithes and offerings, your heart's not in it. You're not doing it. And the way it robs God that's so profound is this whole thing is built. The first response to giving, the first, the first act of giving has to come from you. And if, and if you don't, he has no follow through. So even Jesus, he says, give and it shall be given to you. So the first part of this whole thing has to come from you. And if you don't do your part, God can't do his part. It's a, it's a principle. It's the principle uh, that has to be the first step in everything is, is you turn to the Lord and the Lord turns towards you. You forgive and you shall be forgiven. You give and you shall receive. And the whole thing is built on you doing what your heart tells you to do and then God has something to work with, something to follow through. But the cycle of giving that he's, he's used to just wasn't working. It had ceased. It had stopped. And he says, look, at, I'd like you to get back to this whole principle of, of tithing. He said, if you do it, here's what I'll do. I'll open the windows of heaven. And I'll pour out a blessing that you won't be able to contain. See, it's give, press down, shaking together, running over. There's going to be this running over kind of thing happening. And it's the Lord explaining how, how this whole thing works. And he wanted that religious system to be maintained and kept and re reinstituted. He wanted temple built. He wanted worship. He wanted sacrifice. He wanted all that put back together again. And he said it requires... It requires everybody carrying their load, everyone contributing, everyone having a part of this. And he, he lays out one of the most delicious promises. In fact, if, if you're struggling in your finances, that's a, just turn to Malachi and, and you raise your hand to the Lord. You say, Lord, I'm a tither. You said that you would open windows. I have prayed this. I have prayed this. I've prayed this over this place. It's a powerful promise that does my heart good. It says, you do your part, I'll do my part. Well, Lord, we need it. When we got this building, we're in this place. This was just concrete and, and uh, just a dark hole. And we found out prophetically, Lord saying, you've got an account in heaven that you can draw from. Start drawing from it. And we did. We drew heavily from it. We just bought whatever we needed knowing that it would be paid for, that he would do his part. Because we're, listen now, we're tithers. 
as a church, we tithe, and as people, our, our church, when Wellspring started, our whole core group, we said we're committed to a principle of tithing, not because we have to, not because there's some New Testament commandment. We just choose to live this way. That's where we started. And we've been collecting people and collecting people, and we want people to come who have that kind of heart. I, I think... I think one of the best places to look at it, especially if you're a young person, if you go to Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10. Could you pull that up for me, Jen? If you don't tithe, I likely will never know it. I rarely ever, I don't look at the books. Sometimes I'll ask the treasurer if... if if so-and-so has cha any changes in their giving pattern because it's a barometer of whether their heart's here or not. It's a barometer of their spiritual life. If she says, no, they've stopped giving three months ago, I know something's wrong. I don't go to their house and say, hey, you've stopped giving, but I know something has changed. It's a, it's a major barometer. I'll likely never know whether you tithe or not. I'll likely never know whether you're given out of gratitude and commitment, you're a part of us and you want to do this. But, but in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, this, this would be a great verse for every young person. Every young person, it, it just starting out in life, I wouldn't, I wouldn't start in Malachi. I would start in Proverbs 3, verses 9 and 10. And it, and it says, honor the Lord with your possessions. And the word possessions here uh, uh, has to do with your wealth. So it's specifically money. And the whole thing, the, the footing that I'm, when I first met Jesus, my heart was so grateful that he didn't reject me. He actually wanted to bless me and walk with me and, and be with me. Out of the gush of my heart, I wanted to start giving. And the reason I wanted to give is I wanted to honor the Lord. I wanted to honor the Lord on a daily basis, on a, on a regular basis, on a, on a practical basis. And to, to give out of my substance, to give out of, out of my possessions, out of my wealth, that touched my life in a very, very deep way. Money was always a big problem for me, a big issue for our whole family. But to take that area and say, I'm sanctifying that, and I'm going to give out of... Out of uh, uh, an honor to the Lord. I want to just honor the Lord. I'm not doing this for anyone to see me. In fact, no one will see you, but God will see you. And it's just a way to honor the Lord. And what you do is you just say, I'm going to give him out of the first fruits of all my increase. So whatever comes my way, if there's a, a windfall at tax time, I'm going to tithe on that. I, I'm, I'm looking for ways to make offerings and sacrifices to the Lord. And I just want to live, I want to give to him. I want to live as a giver. And I want to do it out of honor. And I want to do it in a consistent way. So I decided, Heather and I decided, not because we had a, a, a commandment hanging over our head or the threat of a curse, or a threat of a curse. It has to come out of... <laughs> It has to come out of the gush of your heart. In order to satisfy you and in order to satisfy him, it has to come out of the gush of your heart. 
Paul, he tapped into the same principle. If you, if you look for tithing in the New Testament, you won't see it the same way you see it in the Old Testament. What you see is in, in Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, because God poured out such a bountiful blessing on the people, they decided to look after each other and have everything in common. Rich people gave, poor people gave. They just made sure that all the needs were met, and they had this beautiful spirit of, of giving that was flowing that you can't mandate and you can't make it up. It's either there or it's not there. And it was there. It's beautiful. Paul later on, he wrote in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, he's, he's going to take up an offering for the poor uh, and he wants them to do it before he comes. And he says, look, at every man, every man as God has prospered you. So that's, that's the percentage basis. As God has prospered you, Take and lay aside at the first day of the week, and you do this every week on the first day of the week, which is for us is Sunday. And he says, I want you to, as God has prospered you, figure that out, what that would look like, and set that aside on the first day of the week. And when I come, we won't take up offerings. It'll all be gathered, and we'll give it to the, to the poor people in Jerusalem because there had been a famine. Paul's not teaching tithing, but... That whole principle of percentage and that whole principle is as God has prospered you, that whole principle of everybody gets in on this, everybody, whether you're poor or whether you're rich, you can all do it. That same principle is being used here because it works so well. So when we started this church, we just decided that we're all tithers. We're going we're gonna to live this way. And, and we also decided that we're not going to pass offering plates we had, uh, I had an old um, box that I maybe found at an auction or something, had a microscope in it or something. It was just a plain old box. Phil went and drilled a hole in the top so people could put money in it. We just set it at the back of the auditorium. And if people wanted to give because they're grateful, if they wanted to give because they're committed to what we're doing, we're not even going to watch. We're not going to keep, keep tabs on this. We're not going to push a plate in front of them to make to ensure that they all give. And there's that public pressure that, boy, people are going to watch to see whether I put something in the plate or not. And you crumple up a dollar bill and you, you crumple it all up so no one knows what, what it is. And you put that in there because there's a pressure to do it. We thought, we, let's, let's get beyond that. We don't want to live that way. But we want to have all things in common and so we decided that we would tithe. And then one of the other things we did, that there's no Bible verse for this. And, and in fact, I don't know very many churches who do this. We decided that every dollar that came in, we'd set aside 10% as a church. And out of that, we'd give to CareNet and we'd give to missions. We just decided that we wouldn't directly benefit from that money in any way, that it would, it would have to go out to somebody else. If it's a missionary comes through or someone that we want to support in, in Spain or, or that we would just have money to tithe and, and give them a percentage of that. And we've been doing that from day one. We set it up on that basis. There's no, there's no law hanging over our heads. There's no curse hanging over our heads. Here, here's a couple things that motivate us. Most of us have been part of a church at some point in our time, some, point, some part of our history, where people don't give except 
for a few rich men in the congregation. And they foot the bill. In fact, I just read a story a week or two ago that one rich man would come up to the, come up to the pastor and say, I'll cover your salary so that you're free to be available to the church. I'll cover your salary for a year. And so a few rich people pay all the bills and maintain the, the building. And, and everyone else just attends. And the problem with that is... Those rich people, there's something in people's hearts where they end up having dominion, they end up being in charge, and they end up deciding everything, and they end up running everything. And we just decided we didn't want that. So we don't want it to be based on two or three people who give and make sure everything is taken care of. We want it to be so, so spread evenly across the board that everyone has a way to, a way to give. There we go. Everyone can get in on this. How many have heard a story like this? I, this is a true story. I heard this one time. There's a church, a Mennonite church, that needed new hymn, hymn, hymnals. And hymnals are expensive. I, I forget what they were back then, back maybe 30 bucks a book. And if you need two or 300 of them, that's a lot of, that's a chunk of change at one time. They didn't have worship on the wall, off the wall like we have. Everyone had a hymnal in the back of the pew. Very, very expensive purchase. And new hymnal, hymnals were coming out, and so people wanted a new hymnal. They sang from them. They opened them. Do you remember those days? Anyone remember those days at all? When you sang from a hymnal in the back of the pew? Very expensive purchase. So this wealth, wealthy farmer, he said, I'll buy all the hymnals. I'll pay for it. And they had a meeting to decide which hymnal to get because there's two or three options. And hymnals back then, you had favorite songs in one hymnal, but they were missing in another hymnal. And so, I mean, having the right hymnal was everything. And so there were quite a debate rose over which hymnal to buy. And people would stand up and say, I think we should get this hymnal. It's got my favorite hymn in the back here. And Psalm 606 is missing from this one, and I need, I need Psalm 606 every time we gather. They were talking about which hymn, hymn book to buy. Well, finally, the old farmer stood up and he says, look, it, I've had enough of this. I'm paying for the hymnals. This is the one we're going to get. And he decided because he's the one that's paying for it. We decided as a church, we don't want to live under the thumb of that. We'd rather not have two or three people determine. And, and, and if they are givers like that, like it, it, the pastor doesn't preach certain things because he knows he's going to offend the, the givers or the guy who's paying his salary. And so we decided a long time ago the best place to live is if we all give, we all tithe, and it's not based on, 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 on some wealthy person. It's based on all of us carrying this thing, sharing the load. Sometimes, if you go to Germany, if you go to some parts of Holland, if you go to some parts of Sweden, the state pays the salary of the pastor and maintains the buildings. They decide whether a church like this would even exist or not. I mean, we probably would never make the grade, never even allowed to be in operation at all. 
but the state funds and pays the pastor's salary. Well, I've, I've, I've been in some of those churches. I've met some of those people, and I've listened to some of the things that go on. Those pastors, if their salary is paid for and their, their retirement is covered, why work? Why, I mean, if you, if you get paid regardless how many people you visit or how many people you have or how, many, how, much, how good your sermon is, your guaranteed salary from the state, why try? Why put an effort out so they don't? And there's nothing you can say about the government because they're the source of your income. So there, there are two or three options that, that are out there or there's this whole system that comes out of Abraham and comes out of Jacob, comes out of, out of what God himself felt was the best way. God's, God's come up with this whole kind concept of tithing for the church in the wilderness. He said, I think the best way to do this is if we all chip in, we all do it based on, on, on a percentage of what we have, it's the best way to prevent these things from happening. I've racked my brain. I've thought about this up one side, down the other. I can't think of another, I can't think of a better way to do it than what God decided. Just so you know where I'm at, I'm not, this sermon is not for me to get more money. Heather and I, have, we're tithers. We decided very early that we're living this way. Our bills are paid, we don't owe anything. We've always been able to take a lesser salary so that we can have other staff, we can be free to do other things and not be dependent on it. And so we're not dependent entirely on, on a salary that comes from our church. And for the longest time, when we first started this church, it was, we had a living allowance, a housing allowance. We just lived very simply, very uh, modestly, and, and we're free of it all. We're just free of that whole thing. We just don't think about it. So I'm not after more money. I'm not after a bigger salary or anything like that. You could talk to our, our treasurer about any of that if you like to. I just think there's a place of peace. I think there's a place of, of well-being that we've tapped into, that we just we live by tithing. We just tithe. We, we, we are connected with the possessor of heaven and earth. He looks after us, and wherever we go, we don't worry about anything. We've lived even for a whole time without a salary at all. And, and just we're free. It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful place to live. Someone says, well, what do I do? Do I tithe on, on my gross, or do I tithe on my net? Do I tithe $53 and, and, and 33 cents? I mean, do we... Do we how, how do we narrow it right down to the, the, to the penny? I just, think, I just think we ought to live out of the gush of our heart, that we ought to live fully and freely, and we, we tithe, and we don't even keep track of offerings beyond that. We just think that this is the best way to live. If we could sit down with anyone, we'd say, join us. This, this is the most peaceful, freeing way to live. Here's what we decided. We decided we'd live in a way that takes the most amount of faith. Faith is the, com it's the commodity of heaven. It's the currency of heaven. Anything that reduces faith is robbing you forever. So we decided that we're going to live the way that takes the most amount of faith now because that affects our forever. Live in a way 
that shows, shows the most amount of commitment. And we want you to be committed to us as a, as a movement, as a church, as, an, as, a, as a body. And so it, it, doesn't, it doesn't feel right if you come in and it, someone else is paying for all the heat, the electricity, or the, plowway, the, the driveway's been plowed, or this week they had to replace some plumbing. And, and, and rather than just saying, well, someone else will take care of that, I'll just come in and enjoy it. No, we want, we want commitment. We want, we want everyone to be committed. So we live in the way that shows the most amount of commitment. We do whatever requires the most amount of discipline because we're disciples. And you can't, have dis you can't be a disciple without discipline. And so to live with this whole idea of a, a disciplined life is a very freeing life. Amen? There's some promises to stand on. One time, I had malaria, and uh, a couple other brothers had gone to, we'd been gone for a month, we'd gone to Ukraine, we'd gone to India. <clears throat> Mosquito-borne uh, virus that you get in the jungle region where we were, it's called malaria, it's, it's deadly. A lot of people die from it. And uh, it hit us really hard. And I'm on my sick bed in a house in Buffalo. And I turn to Psalm 91, where it talks about the Lord protecting us, the Lord watching over us. And I said, Lord, your word says that if, if you love the poor and you look after the poor, the Lord will visit you on your sickbed and your health will spring forth speedily. I said, Lord, you know I love the poor. I just, I just went to India and, and the Ukraine. Ukraine was even poorer than India, I think, at that time. And we just come home with our toothbrush and we give everything. Just, we, just, we live to give and love the poor. And I said, Lord, your word, your word says that you will visit me on my sickbed and my health will spring forth speedily. What do, how do I begin? He said, begin by praising me. And so as I laid there in the bed, no strength, no appetite, perspiring one minute and chills frozen the next minute, I began with the weakest voice, began thanking the Lord out loud, and strength came into me. Strength hit me. I just felt renewed. I felt something changed. I got up. I got dressed. I went downstairs to the house where I was staying to have a meal. And I had no appetite before. And, and there was a doctor there that was looking for a way to find a, a cure for me. And he, he diagnosed and talking to other doctors to figure out what was wrong with me and what, what it would take to get me to well again. And he's working at, at this. He went home and got a big volume uh, to be able to, to figure out what I had and what I needed. He says, I know what he has, and I know what he needs, but I don't think we can get this in Buffalo. We've called all over all the, all the uh, drugstores to find. Nobody has the kind of medicine that he needs to recover from this malaria. And the guy whose house we're staying in, he says, what's the name of the medicine? And, and so he told him. He said, I have that medicine in my, in my medicine chest. He said, I had a trip planned. He was an engineer, built bridges. He said, I have a trip planned to Africa, and I bought that medicine to use in case I got malaria in Africa. My trip was canceled. I have that medicine. I'm in a home that has the medicine in the medicine chest. 
They went and they got it. The guy said, take this, throw up, and you'll feel better. <laughs> well, I took it, threw up. And I was, uh, my bill for that whole thing was zero. The whole thing, just, just over in, in days, I, be, I, was, I was renewed. Another guy, on the, he was up in Rochester at the infectious disease clinic, struggling for his life for the longest time. His bill was, was thousands and thousands of dollars. The other brother was stuck in an, an intensive care ward in Brooklyn, New York. He was struggling. The only thing I know, the only thing I know is that the difference between us, we all love the poor. I just think there's something, a moment where you have to stand on the promises, say it out loud, and hold him, God is the man of his word, and say, Lord, your word says. That's all I did. And it turned everything around. The same thing can happen where you say, Lord, I'm a tither. I'm, I'm committed to this. This is my lifestyle. This is the choice. I, no one's twisting my arm. No one's watching. I do this for your honor, for your glory. I live this. I choose to live this way. Then you have something to stand on. You say, Lord, open those windows. I want, I want new wine in my vats. I want my barn full. I need my barn full. There's seasons in life where you need it. I recommend everyone who's in business for themselves here to tap into the concept of tithing in some way that honors the Lord. In all my, all my years of pastoring, we've, we've collected people who feel this way, who believe this way. But there are people who don't. There are people who object. There are people who say, no, I'm not doing that. I don't live that way. I don't believe that way. And, and oftentimes, one of the common denominators we see is that they've been hurt by church, they've been disappointed by church, they're not really, they're not really a fan of, of being part of a local church. And the first thing that happens, this whole issue of tithing is one of the things that creates a lot of tension for them. I don't know about you, but I'm committed to living this way. And nothing could persuade me otherwise. We've tapped into peace, we've tapped into order. We tapped into something that feels so right. And I just encourage you to join us in living this way. Moms and dads, teach your kids. Train your kids. Show them how to tithe from the very beginning. Take them to the offering box. Help them tithe their allowance. Help them, help them to, to figure that out. Keep them in that vein where it's coming out of gratitude rather than some kind of law hanging over their head that there's a curse that will hit them if they don't. Don't, don't lead them into that. Lead them into the highway, the right way. Tell them that you're sons of Abraham. There's a promise that Abraham had that he would be blessed by the God who owns everything in heaven and earth. So when you walk, you just feel like you own everything. You just feel like it doesn't matter what happens with the economy. It doesn't, doesn't matter what happens to the supply chain. We're good. We're going forward because we're tapped into something. Amen? Amen. Some of you are looking at me with long faces. Are you okay with this? This is the second time in 14 years that I've taught about tithing. I should teach on it more often. It's such a delicious word to my soul. It's such a deep, powerful, profound word. I don't know why I don't teach on it. Maybe I'm shy. Maybe I don't want to offend. I definitely don't want to offend new people who think the church is all about money. If they could only know how free this church is in that regard and how fluent and how many givers we have, how, how free people are to give here. This is one of the most amazing places I've ever been a part of. 
where there's a fluency in giving. So I'm not doing this to wring more money from you. If anything, it just should confirm that this is the right way to live. Amen? Let's stand together. Father, thank you that you've made us children of Abraham through Jesus Christ. That the promises that you spoke over Abraham of blessing are ours. That you'll bless us. You'll cause us to increase. You'll multiply us. That we'll be effective. We'll be fruitful. Thank you, Father. We didn't deserve that. It came as part of the package of receiving Jesus. And we're so grateful for it. We love you and we bless you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you as you go.